Hi everyone, thanks so much for downloading Dark Histories. The podcast has been growing really well recently and that's thanks to all you good people who share it around with your friends and families. Before we start, I just want to throw out a few ways that you can help to support the show throughout the growth and keep it sustainable. We have a Patreon, an Amazon booklist, a coffee and an Audible affiliate link. So if you're interested in supporting, hopefully you can find a way to do so that suits you. All of the links for those various things can be found on the website over at darkhistories.com and of course, just continuing to share it around with all your friends and families is a huge help. So thanks so much for all your help with that. Okay, let's get on with the show. On a cold December night of 1937, Renowned psychical investigator Harry Price strode up to the steps outside a large Victorian house in a quiet, well-to-do London suburb. He'd come to the house to partake in a seance, invited by a woman known only as Mrs X, whom in their communications leading up to the night had guaranteed him a spirit manifestation. Price had seen it all before. He'd crafted a career from debunking such fraudsters and in all likelihood This event was to be much the same. Or was it? What unravelled that night has been the subject of fierce debate and deep research for over 80 years, and still to this day, it leaves a web of tangled leads, the likes of which any Hollywood scriptwriter could only dream of conjuring. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello, welcome to Dark History Season 3, Episode 18. I'm Ben, and this week we have just a bumper episode for you that I absolutely thoroughly enjoyed researching. It's seriously just one of the most convoluted, mad episodes, I think, that I've probably done to date on Dark History. So I hope you really, really enjoy it. A couple of little things. Firstly, last week I mentioned, or last episode rather, I mentioned uh, that things were going to be changing after the next series. Um, all I meant by that, I've had a couple of people sort of ask me how how I mean changing and they're a bit concerned. So I should point out all I meant by that was I'm going to be um, upgrading some of my studio equipment. So yeah, that that's the only change. I, I, I kind of probably made it sound a bit more ominous than I needed to. But yeah, it's just, just going to be a few studio upgrades. So hopefully the sound will improve. And on that point, I was planning on doing that between series three and four, but some things have happened um, that have kind of made it happen a little earlier. So hopefully from next episode, we will start to hear a few improvements on the the sound and it will pretty much be moving towards its final form, I guess. (laughs) Um, The sound should hopefully be like on par with most professional broadcasts, which would be great. So yeah, that's that. Um, And just want to say thank you to patrons. We've got straight away a name that I'm never going to be able to pronounce. And I'm, I guess I'm just going to, fingers crossed here, Sarah Duen, uh, Lynn, Chris, Claire, Lily, Jean, Atlanta, Super Mango Man, Kimberly and Mickey. So thanks very much. Um, thank you very much to all the new patrons. Thank you very much to all the recurring patrons. Uh, your support is always massively appreciated. And like I say, especially... Um, I'm upgrading the studio at the moment. So I I say studio. What I mean is my bedroom, (laughs) the recording space in my bedroom. So yeah, it's going to be great though. It's going to, the sound quality is hopefully going to, I don't know if it'll be that noticeable to 
to, to everyone, but to the people who are sensitive to it, I, I hope you'll notice the differences. Um, yeah, it should um, pretty much be put onto a professional broadcast level. So that's that's really good. So that's that's going to be exciting news uh, for me, at least anyway, as a sound nerd. So anyway, let's get on the episode because it's going to be a really long one this week. This is Harry Price and the Seance of Rosalie. As advancements in both industrial processes and the scientific method rose in populist thought throughout Europe and America in the 19th century, so too did spiritualism rise in parallel. This wild, exciting new belief told of spirits surviving after death and contacting the living. As the numbers that believed grew, so too did the ways in which people dreamt up to facilitate the communications with the afterlife that so drove the movement forward. Seances are infamous examples of practices carried out in dark rooms, filled with people ready to explore the thoroughly modern belief system, but there were hundreds of ways devised throughout the 19th century, from table wrapping to automatic writing, materialisations to possession, and every which way in between they were explored by both genuine believers and the people who were out to make a penny or two from those that so wanted to believe. Whilst many spiritualists linked the religion to science, claiming it far more scientifically probable than more conventional old religious worldview, many actual scientists distanced themselves from the movement, and groups of thinkers, philosophers, scientists and writers gathered to discuss the merits and pitfalls of both the spiritualist belief in a transitionary afterlife and the explosion of paranormal claims that grew alongside. As these questions piled up, so too did the people looking to answer them, and with this rise, organised societies of researchers and investigators began to form whose sole purpose was to scientifically analyse bold, otherworldly claims. One of the largest and oldest societies in the world, the Society for Psychical Research, was founded around those debates in London in 1882. The group boasted authors, chemists, physicists and philosophers amongst its membership, and over the following 30 years, worked to investigate psychical and paranormal claims, both within and around spiritualism. Members exposed frauds, published papers on hypnotism, poltergeists and psychics, and with each paper, new controversy and debates were spawned. In the early to mid-20th century, no one psychical researcher was more well-known than Harry Price. Throughout the interwar years, he had debunked handfuls of high-profile mediums in the name of scientific inquiry. Known as an enemy of spiritualism by many and a sensationalist showboater by more, he wrote dozens upon dozens of papers for various psychical institutions, including his own, and he built a laboratory that was the envy of the psychical research world. Both trusted and feared, nothing could get by price. At least, that's what everybody thought up until 1939, when he published his book, 50 Years of Psychical Research, which shone a whole new light onto his own beliefs. Born in Holborn, London, on the 17th of January 1881, Harry Price grew up in a modest yet somewhat unorthodox family. His father, Edward Price, was a grocer who, aged 41, had married his mother, Emma Price, when she was just 15 years old. At the time, she was already six months pregnant with Harry's older sister, Anna. Despite the questionable family background having little to do with Harry Price himself, it was a situation that caused him some grief throughout his life. Shortly after his birth, 
His family had worked themselves into a position where they were able to move to Chelsea and then later on to Newcross, both well-to-do Victorian suburbs of London. In 1892, aged 11, he attended the Haberdashers Asks Hatcham Boys School and upon leaving became a commercial traveller. By his mid-teenage years, he had already shown an interest in both parapsychology and conjuring, having written a play for an amateur dramatics group that he had founded aged 15 about his experiences as a young child with an alleged poltergeist in a house in Shropshire. His interest in magic and conjuring focused mainly on stage magicians, though he enjoyed practising himself as a hobby and later joined the Magic Circle in 1922, maintaining his membership throughout his life. This interest in conjuring and magic was one of many interests for Price and he routinely joined evening classes at Goldsmith College, studying subjects as broad as photography, engineering and chemistry. His interest in magic, however, was somewhat more impactful on his life and it formed a foundation from which he would refer to as a psychical investigator, which he transitioned seamlessly into after reading extensively on the subject of magic leading to the occult and spiritualism. Price was a voracious reader, and as a book collector, he amassed books surrounding the topics of conjuring, the occult and spiritualism at every opportunity, with a specific interest in spiritual mediumship and seance circles, eventually owning a library of over 20,000 books on various spiritualist and psychical matters. It was around 1896 when Price first began to attend spiritualist meetings in London, and he visited many public seances. These were small gatherings, often in private houses, advertised in spiritualist pamphlets and journals and would cost anything from one to five shillings a throw. It was at these seances where his interest in conjuring and stage magic crossed over to the physical realm and though he attended hundreds of such meetings throughout this period, his overriding attitude towards them was one of disappointment and dismissal, stating that they were almost interesting but not convincing. It was also around this time, as the 19th century was drawing to a close, that scientific research into psychical and spiritualist affairs was moving into its own. Interest in the practices had grown to saturation levels, and with the combination of this popularity and the relatively modern enthusiasm for science and technological advancement that the late Victorian era championed so hard, scrutiny of the practices was at an all-time high. The founding of the Society for the Psychical Research, or the SPR, had done much to forward such debate. The SPR took on numerous spiritualist mediums and it often found itself in the same controversial arguments as it does today, with some thinking their experiments scientifically unsound and others glad to bring a new level of integrity to a complex and often shrouded subject. The members of the SPR themselves showed similar divisions and the society was formed of a broad spectrum, from hardcore debunkers to champions of the spiritualist movement. Throughout the society's early years, they uncovered the fraud surrounding several high-profile spirit mediums, exposing their methods and in many cases replicating them in demonstrations. In 1891, Price joined in on this lampooning when he collaborated with another investigator named Eric Dingwall on a book published in the USA titled Revelations of a Spirit Medium. Throughout the book, the pair ruthlessly exposed many of the tricks and fraudulent practices being carried out by the abundance of hack mediums, looking to make a few coin from vulnerable mourners and curious bystanders. 
In 1902, Price's mother died aged just 42 years old, and four years later, his father too passed away aged 71. After their death, he moved to Brockley in South London, and whilst living there as a tenant not far from his family home, he met Constance Mary Knight, whom he formed a tight relationship with, and went on to wed on the 1st of August 1908. After their marriage, the couple moved out of the smoke of the South London suburbs to the leafy village of Pulborough in West Sussex. The outbreak of war in 1914 brought Price's interest in spiritualism to an abrupt end, though it was only temporary as, after the conclusion of the fighting in 1918, and with so many of those who went to battle never returning, the popularity of spiritualism soared once more as families and wives flocked to seances to find answers and say their final farewells to loved ones lost in the trenches. This interwar period between the First and Second World Wars was to be Harry Price's investigatorial stomping ground and in 1920 he joined the SBR in a semi-professional capacity. Throughout the 20s, Price exposed many high-profile mediums and spiritualist fraudsters, including the spirit photographer William Hope, who had claimed he could take photographs of spirits during seances. Price switched Hope's glass photographic plates with substitutes secretly marked. They exposed Hope when he produced his spirit images on entirely different sets of plates than those that Price had switched, proving that somewhere down the line, he had introduced pre-prepared plates. Price's name grew within the world of the psychical investigators and by 1925 he was given the honorary position of Foreign Research Officer at the American Society of Psychical Research. A year later, in 1926, Price founded the National Laboratory of Psychical Research, a group which, in many ways, rivalled the SPR, whom Price was forever on difficult terms with, clashing over their opinions on several psychics including the psychic and levitation expert Rudy Schneider from Austria, whom Price believed, and later proved, to be a fraudster, whilst the SPR thought otherwise. Price's new group, like the SPR, also aimed to scientifically test and evaluate psychical phenomena, and to this end, Price had a special seance room built on the top floor of the Kensington HQ. The National Laboratory of Psychical Research possesses the finest installation in the world for experimental research work in the field of psychic science. No expense has been spared in equipping the laboratory with every scientific instrument which will be used in experiments capable of exact measurement. And when Price said no expense had been spared, he wasn't kidding. Aside from a world-class laboratory, lecture theatre, workshop and darkroom, the specially designed seance room consisted of seven cameras, one of which was capable of stereoscopic photography, UV filter lighting, flashlights, daylights and spotlights, thermographic recording devices, a dictaphone, a bespoke mediums cabinet and note-takers table which had been specially crafted in Paris, and the whole room was wired with microphones that fed their output into an entirely separate room for recording. Perhaps this might not sound impressive in 2019, but when one considers that simply having a room wired for electricity with several wall sockets was impressive back in the early 1920s, the scope of the operation becomes a little more apparent. Price put the room to work, continuing to test, and in a vast majority of cases, expose fraudulent spiritualists, so much so that he became considered as an enemy of spiritualism by many. Never being one to mince words, Price himself called the spiritualist movement 
the laughing stock of the thinking man. At its best, a religion. At its worst, a racket. Despite his hard-nosed stance on psychical affairs, Price was dedicated to finding positive results as much as he was to debunking fraudsters. Both Danish medium Anna Rasmussen and the Romanian poltergeist case of Eleanor Zugan earned his endorsements as genuine phenomena and gaining from this a large boost in credibility. In 1931, his exposure of the previously mentioned Rudy Schneider as a fraudulent medium was one of Price's final cases focusing on spiritual mediumship. Instead, later, he began to work on cases which many saw as populist and somewhat sensationalist, such as firewalking and haunted houses. In 1936, he broadcast live from a haunted house on BBC National Radio, effectively pioneering the modern ghost-hunting TV shows some 70 years in advance. Price continued to write and visit seances throughout the latter half of the 30s, though it had become more of a personal rather than professional endeavour. Much of his professional time became slowly enveloped by what was to come probably his most infamous case, researching the derelict and allegedly haunted Borley Rectory in Essex. Throughout this period, while some saw his antics as dumbing down psychical research and courting popularity, he was still considered by many to be one of the most successful psychical researchers of his day, and despite his enthusiasm to spread the word of psychical research to the masses, he maintained a level of integrity to his original cause, and a level head. I must claim some authority for deciding whether fraud was possible or not, as methods of deception have been a special study of mine, from necessity and not from choice, a vital study for anyone claiming to be a scientific investigator. It was with this same attitude that Price stepped through the dark streets of London in December of 1937, towards a large detached Victorian house. Climbing the stone steps to the front door, he wrapped his knuckles on the hard wood. He had been invited to attend a seance by a woman who claimed she would guarantee him a ghostly materialisation, a claim which Price himself found questionable, but nevertheless, he had accepted the invitation and now found himself at the house which would stand at the heart of a heated debate for decades. A young maid answered the door and allowed him into the entrance hall, took his coat and strode off to notify the house owners of his arrival. One week earlier, on the morning of December the 8th, Harry Price had received a phone call in his office from a woman who Price only ever named Mrs X, and he simply described as educated and cultured. The caller told him that she had recently read articles concerning his exploits in debunking fraudulent mediums and thought that perhaps he might be interested in joining her in a small private spirit circle in her home within which they held weekly seances. These seances, she claimed to Price, could absolutely guarantee a spirit manifestation, a phenomena she knew from reading said articles that Price was sceptical of. She had been impressed with his efforts to root out the truth in such matters and as such, invited him along in order to do quite the same for her own circle. The invitation did come with some caveat, a series of rules and conditions. However, Bryce had become accustomed to such situations. It was often common practice to place conditions upon an investigator with the justification that they needed to be in place in order to protect the medium or not scare away a spirit. Most of the time, they were put in place simply to neuter the investigator and hamper legitimate practice. The caller in this case, however, surprised Price with their confidence 
and the level of control that they would be willing to hand over in trade. And now came the surprise. If I accepted their invitation, I would be allowed full control of the room and the sitters up to the beginning of the seance. I could search the house from top to bottom, seal all external windows and doors, search the seance room, all doors and windows of which I could lock and seal. I could move or remove any furniture, ornaments, etc. from the seance room which I thought fit. I could search the sitters or any person in the house immediately before or after the seance, but once the sitting had begun, I was to remain passive and ask permission if I wanted to do anything or make any alteration during the seance. This, thought Price, was either an extreme level of naivety or someone who was awfully confident in their medium. The rules which Price had to follow in order to gain such a free reign over the proceedings were equally simple. Price was asked not to reveal the location of the circle nor the identity of any of the sitters, though he would be permitted to write a report on the seance provided he ensured the group's anonymity would remain intact. If he found the event interesting enough, he would be allowed no further sittings and was asked that he not attempt to seek a further scientific inquiry as the mother of the spirit that they had guaranteed they could materialise was afraid that in doing so it might scare it away for good an outcome that all were obviously keen to avoid. In more practical terms, Price was told he could not bring any torches into the seance room and would not be allowed to touch nor speak to the spirit unless specifically permitted. There was to be no documents or contract to be signed. Price need simply agree to the terms as a gentleman and the seance could take place with all the freedoms previously mentioned. In his book, 50 Years of Psychical Research, Harry Price said that these conditions genuinely astonished him, and after concluding the phone call and turning the matter over for the weekend, he drafted a reply to the caller on the morning of Monday the 13th of December. Dear Madam, I am taking advantage of your kind offer to attend a sitting at your house and propose being with you on Wednesday next, the 10th instance, about 7 o'clock. If there is any difficulty about this, I should be grateful if you would kindly let me know immediately. I was wondering whether you would be so kind as to allow Mr. R.S. Lambert, the editor of The Listener, a journal which I know is read by you, to accompany me on Wednesday as a sort of witness. He would conform to all the conditions which you outlined to me last week, and I would personally vouch for him. If you can possibly see your way to grant my request, will you kindly telephone me or send me a telegram sometime tomorrow in order that I can communicate with Mr. Lambert, who would then make the necessary arrangements. Thank you for your courtesy in this matter. Yours faithfully, Harry Price. Price had hoped that he may be permitted to bring along fellow investigator Richard Lambert, who he had in recent years teamed up with on the Isle of Man to investigate the case of Jeff, the talking mongoose. However, after no further communication from Mrs X came with confirmation, he dropped the idea and decided to attend alone. And so it was that on Wednesday the 15th of December 1937, Harry Price made his way up the stone steps and into the home of Mr. and Mrs. X to attend a seance in which he was told would guarantee the spirit materialisation of a young girl. Arriving at 7pm, the group sat down to have dinner together before the seance would begin and Price was introduced to all the members of the group and told the backstory to their activities. Price's descriptions of the group that he met at the house were naturally vague. Mr. X was a businessman in the city 
and both he and Mrs. X were commented on as being simply charming with affable personality. Neither were spiritualists themselves, but were both interested in psychical research and had read some of the more widely available literature on the subject. They were also joined by Miss X, their 16-year-old daughter, and Jim, a cheerful young fellow, who worked as a bank clerk in the city aged around 22 years old and whom Price suspected was there out of interest in Miss X rather than spiritualism. The final member of the circle who was to sit that evening was a French lady whom Price named Madame Z. Madame Z was a nurse who had lost her English husband during the First World War whilst he was serving in the trenches and had lost her only daughter aged just six-year-old to diphtheria five years later in 1921. This daughter was named Rosalie and it was with Rosalie that the circle had been in communication with, Price was told, for the past nine years. Madame Z had met Mrs X whilst helping out at a church bazaar and rented a small apartment in the same neighbourhood as the X household. The story began for Madame Z when she had woken one night to the sounds of what she described as her dead daughter calling out to her. A confirmed spiritualist, Madame Z did not seem to find this at all perplexing and had instead coasted into the habit of lying awake at night waiting for the quivering cries of mother which were apparently so frequent as to be almost every night. As this continued on, eventually, Madame Z thought she could see a dim outline of Rosalie in the dark and attested to hearing footsteps in her room. These visitations led to her casting her hands into the darkness one night, only to feel them clasped back by the hands of the little girl. Confiding with Mrs X about this, both she and her husband suggested that they hold seances to explore these communications in their own home, which was considerably larger than that of Madame Z's. And so, their spiritualist circle was born, meeting every Wednesday since the end of 1928. At first, their attempts to contact Rosalie were not successful at all, and Price was told of how it took six months before the group had any results. Though Rosalie would still visit Madame Z in her bedroom at night, she was not forthcoming in the seance room. Eventually, their perseverance paid off when in the spring of 1929, she materialised during one of their meetings, suddenly clasping her mother's hands in the dark room. From that evening on, the girl appeared regularly and as things progressed, so too did their methods. The group introduced hand mirrors painted with luminous paint which they used as soft lights to illuminate the spirit. And when Rosalie slowly began to speak during their communions, they began asking simple questions to the girl, though Price was told that she remained very shy and usually only answered with a simple, quietly spoken yes or no. Over the years, the group had invited one or two new members to sit as guests, and as this had not seemed to be too much of a change for Rosalie, it was decided that Price should be invited to see for himself. As the story of Rosalie wrapped up and dinner was finished, group then turned their attentions to the planned sitting and Price was given full control of both the group and the house. Mr X and Jim took a tour of the rooms with Price. The house was a large four-storey affair with the drawing room on the ground floor doubling up as the group's seance room. Price set about making the house as secure as he could, taping the windows and doors to every room with sticky tape, which he initialled to act as a seal. Once satisfied the house was secure, 
The group entered the drawing room, which Price examined with great care. The fire in the fireplace had recently petered out, and instead, a small electric fireplace heated the room. In front of the glowing element, the house's dog lay asleep on the floor of the room, ignoring the group as they entered. There were six paintings hanging on the walls, along with a cluster of furniture throughout, including a sofa that sat in the bay window, which were fronted by large, thick curtains that the family had bought specifically for the seances in order to shut out all light from the street lamps outside and allowing the room to be plunged into perfect darkness. There was a small cabinet with a radio sat in one corner, a mahogany sideboard which sat up against the wall, and a small round table in the far corner. Ornaments aligned the mantelpiece, along with a clock and various other clutter, whilst the floorboards were made of solid, dark hardwood, covered with four plush Persian rugs. Price quickly decided that there was too much going on in the room, and he removed all of the ornaments, clock and clutter from the mantelpiece and placed it in the dining room. He then sprinkled starch powder in the hallway outside of the door to the drawing room, closed the group inside with himself and taped and sealed the edges. In order to solve the problem of the chimney, he sprinkled more starch onto the floor in front of the fireplace and onto a piece of newspaper at the foot of the grate and used his finger to trace his initials into the powder. Happy that there was no way anyone could enter or leave the room without disturbing his controls, Price then turned his attention to the remaining furniture searching the cushions and undercarriage of all the articles. The floor was inspected for trapdoors, and finally, both Jim and Mr. X were searched. In typical fashion, Price explained that he could not rightly search the three women, and so, a compromise was made by having Mrs. X and Madame Z sit on either side of him in the circle. The young Miss X, however, pulled up her dress and displayed her gymnasium clothing underneath which she was wearing as she had returned just before dinner from a health and beauty class. Satisfied that he had done all he could to ensure an honest sitting, the staff of the household, a parlour maid and cook, were told not to disturb the group whilst they were in the drawing room and to ignore both the door and telephone if anyone was to ring or stop by the house. The six chairs were laid out in a circle in the centre of the room and at ten past nine, the lights were switched off, plunging the room into darkness. The arrangement of the sitters, my arrangement, by the way, was as follows. I sat with my back to the fireplace, with my hostess on my right and Madame Z on my left. Next to her was Miss X, then Jim, and finally Mr X himself. Four of the luminous plaques already mentioned had been handed around, and they rested on the floor face downwards by the sides of the chairs occupied by Madame Z, Mrs X, Jim and myself. The luminous surface of each plaque had been activated at an electric light bulb previous to the seance. We were informed by Mrs X that we could talk quietly unless told not to. There was neither hymn singing nor prayers nor any suggestion of the pandemonium which often accompanies a seance. Although it was pitch dark, I could accurately determine where a voice was coming from and whose voice it was and could even hear the breathing of the various sitters. After chatting quietly for about 20 minutes, we were asked to stop and Mr X said that he would put on a wireless. He left his seat and groped his way to the small table behind me, to my right. He had some difficulty in finding suitable music, which he finally received from a foreign station. 
The small lamps which lit up the station's panel also illuminated the room and I could see the sitters distinctly. Madame Z appeared to be crying. Within five minutes of turning on the radio, X switched it off again and resumed his seat. Then we were asked to remain quiet. No one spoke. A little later, I heard Madame Z softly whisper, Rosalie. This was repeated at intervals for about 20 minutes. Sometimes Mrs X also called her. I could hear both Madame Z and Miss X sobbing quietly. I had been warned that the seance was of a sacred character, but I had not anticipated such a display of emotion. I could not help contrasting this sitting with the matter-of-fact laboratory experiments with which I was much more familiar. It was a few minutes after I heard the clock in the hall strike ten that Madame Z gave a choking sob and said something about my darling. Mrs X leant towards me and whispered, Rosalie is here, don't speak. At the same moment I too realised that there was something quite close to me. I neither heard nor saw anything, but the sensation was an olfactory one. I seemed to smell something that was not there previously. It was a strange, not unpleasant smell. Everyone was silent except for the rather distressing emotion of the mother. I sensed rather than knew that she was fondling her child. The next sound I heard was a sort of shuffling of feet on my left, and at the same moment as something slightly touched the back of my left hand, which was resting on my knee. It felt soft and a little warm. I did not attempt to feel what had touched me, but sat very still. Madame Z continued to whisper to the child, and her sobbing ceased somewhat. After a few minutes, Mrs X asked the mother whether I could touch the materialization. Permission was given, and I stretched out my left arm, and, to my amazement, it came in contact with, apparently, the nude figure of a little girl, aged about six years. I slowly passed my hand across her chest, up to her chin and cheeks. Her flesh felt warm, though, and this may have been my imagination, not so warm as one would expect to find normal human flesh. I laid the back of my hand on her right cheek. It felt soft and warm, and I could distinctly hear her breathing. I then placed my hand on her chest again, and could feel the respiratory movements. My hand travelled to her thighs, back and buttocks, then traversed her legs and feet. They were the normal limbs of a normal six-year-old. I estimated her height at about three feet seven inches. I could feel her hair, long and soft, falling over her shoulders. There are no words to express how I felt at the appearance of the form before me, or rather, to the left of me. A supreme scientific interest, with a feeling of absolute incredulity, would best describe my reactions. I had not bargained for anything so wonderful or so clever as this. But if I had been tricked, so had the mother, and that was unthinkable. She, at least, was not acting a part. I asked whether I could hold Rosalie, and I was told that I could move my chair nearer to the child, and this I did. I was now able to use both hands and again felt every inch of that little form. If it is a spirit, I argued to myself, then there is no difference between a spirit and a human being. With my right hand, I lifted Rosalie's right arm and felt her pulse. It appeared to be too quick, 
and I estimated a rate of 90 to the minute. I put my ear to her chest and could distinctly hear her heart beating. I then took both her hands and asked X, his daughter and Jim to speak in order to prove their presence in their respective seats. They did so. I knew that Madame Z and Miss X were on either side of me as I had only to put my hand to touch them. At this juncture, I asked my hostess if Madame Z would allow me to use the luminous plaque. After a little discussion, it was agreed that both Mrs X and I should shine our plaques on Rosalie, the stipulation being that we should begin at the feet of the form and then later illuminate the upper part of the child. I picked up my plaque and in turning it over, a soft fluorescent glow flooded the feet of Rosalie. They were the normal feet of a normal child. Mrs X held her plaque to the left side of the girl while I illuminated the front of her. I could see the soft texture of the flesh, which appeared to be without a blemish. As our plaques travelled upwards, the face of the form was revealed and we beheld a beautiful child who would have graced any nursery in the land. Her features were classical and she looked older than her alleged years. Her face appeared very pale, but the fluorescence would tend to kill any colouring in her cheeks. Her eyes, they appeared to be dark blue, were bright with an intelligent gleam in them. Her lips were closed with rather a set expression. Madame Z said the examination must now cease, as Rosalie was wanted. As a special favour, I requested that I might put some questions to Rosalie, and this was granted with the remark that it was unlikely that she would speak that night. If the reader were suddenly faced with an alleged spirit, what questions would he ask it? With some preparation, a series of useful inquiries could be drawn up, but on the spur of the moment it is extremely difficult to make proper use of such an opportunity, especially when the spirit is so young and unsophisticated. However, I suppose I must have subconsciously imagined that the child was a real one, that it lived in a real place, and that it understood perfectly what I was saying. I found myself asking Rosalie what I should ask any other little girl who had come from some strange place and whom I had chanced to meet. I was permitted one minute only in which to question her, and this is what I asked her. Where do you live, Rosalie? No answer. What do you do there? No answer. Do you play with other children? No answer. Have you any toys there? No answer. Are there any animal pets? No answer. The questions were asked deliberately and I paused between each one. Rosalie simply stared and did not seem to understand what I was saying. I asked her a final question. Rosalie, do you love your mummy? I saw the expression on her face change and her eyes light up. Yes, she lisped. Rosalie had barely uttered this single word when Madame Z gave one cry and clasped her daughter to her breast. Mrs X placed our plaques on the floor again and asked for complete silence, rather difficult as all the women in the circle were crying. I must admit that I was rather affected myself. It was a touching and pathetic scene. In about 15 minutes, Rosalie had gone. I neither heard nor felt anything of her leaving, but as the hall clock struck 11, Mrs X informed me that the seance was over. X switched on all the lights and invited me to make any search that I liked. I examined all my seals and everyone was intact. 
I again removed the furniture and examined the floors, sideboards, settees, etc. and found everything normal. The starch powder was undisturbed. Even the Airedale dog was still asleep in front of the cold electric fire. At least the seance had not affected him. My host asked me to remove the seals, which I did, and he opened the door and rang for refreshments. Whilst these were being bought, I accompanied Jim in another tour of the house. All of my seals were intact. I remained at the house until nearly midnight, when I took my leave with many thanks for an extraordinarily interesting and puzzling evening. Harry Price left the household and returned to a nearby members club, where he sat up for almost the entire rest of the night writing his report, which you have just heard, on what was an evening that deeply disturbed him. He managed only a few hours of sleep that morning as he penned his experiences and retired to bed, turning them over in his mind, utterly perplexed as to what he just witnessed in the previous five hours. The next morning, Bryce sat in his office according to one source looking deeply disturbed and almost distraught following his experiences at the Rosalie seance. Had he legendary debunker finally witnessed a seance that he could not explain away with cheap parlour tricks. Later that day, he wrote a short introduction to his report that he had written the night before, which would be included when he would eventually publish it in 1939. I began writing this report, which is printed verbatim and uncorrected, within two hours of the termination of the seance in bed at the Royal Society's Club. I purposely wrote the report at once, while my impressions were still fresh. I feel I have not done justice in this report to the amazing events of last night, and I am still wondering if Rosalie was a genuine spirit entity, or whether the whole thing was an elaborate hoax. If the latter, then the hoax has been going on for years, and no actress in the world could simulate Madame Z's poignant emotion. And where did the spirit come from? These are questions which I shall have to think about and answer. If I had witnessed the materialisation of Rosalie in my own laboratory, I should not hesitate to proclaim to an incredulous world that survival was proved. Looking at it in retrospect, I can think of several things I ought to have done that I did not do, and one of these is the taking of Rosalie's fingerprints. I had ample opportunity, but no materials. Another thing I might have done was to have ascertained who the medium was. Madame Z herself denies that she is mediumistic, but I can think of no one else. Apparently, there was no medium. This internal tug of war between astonishment and niggling doubt that the seance had not taken place in his own laboratory and that he may have been tricked somehow was a struggle that he would have for the rest of his life and was a feeling shared by the public when the story of Rosalie was unleashed upon the publication of his book titled 50 Years of Psychical Research in 1939 dedicating an entire chapter to his experiences at the Rosalie Seance. When it was finally published, many reviewers and critics were quick to poke Price concerning the chapter. In the previous years, Price had courted publicity just a shade too much for some, and they saw the inclusion of the Rosalie chapter in this book as a cheap, sensationalist fiction to sell copy. Price took a differing view to his popular accounts, however, seeing himself as an educator of the everyman on matters of spiritualism and psychical research. Whichever way you look at it, the Rosalie story was certainly an incredible account, and Price was not blind to the fact either. He published the work, fully aware that its inclusion would be controversial, 
and he later confessed that he had not wanted it to be in the book at all, rather it was pressed by his publisher to be included. Regardless, now that his account had been made public, it seemed that everyone wanted a piece of price. Spiritualists derided him for being an enemy of their movement for so many years, only to turn around now and propose that a legitimate spirit materialisation had occurred, while sceptics and psychical researchers, who adhered closer to the realms of science, were quick to criticise his inclusion of an account that had taken place outside of the laboratory. Harry Price had been walking a fine line for many years between the spiritualist movement and the scientific community, and with his publication of the Rosalie Seance, he seemingly rubbed both the wrong way. British tabloid The Sunday Mirror wrote a two-page article on the book on the 15th of October 1939 and said of the Rosalie chapter, In the catalogue of charlatans and humbugs, unproven phenomena, unsatisfactory tests and unexplained mysteries that Mr Price gives you in his book, there is one astonishing story that stands out above all others. It is the story of Rosalie, the six-year-old child, who reappeared in her mother's arms in apparently solid flesh long years after death. Mr. Price himself calls it the most remarkable case of materialisation, or alleged materialisation, that he has ever witnessed in his 30 years of investigation into spiritualism. He still feels it possible that he might have been deceived, but if I was deceived, how was it done, and what possible motive could there have been, asks Mr. Price. In 1946, Price closed the case as far as he was concerned by writing an account for an article in a private psychical society journal named Help Yourself, within which he detailed his actions after the initial seance. Many had questioned why Price had not pushed harder for further seances to take place, or for him to break his initial agreement and to try to gain an investigation which could take place under more traditional conditions and with all his available tools. Price explained that he had kept in touch with both Mr and Mrs X after the Rosalie seance, but in August of 1939, the couple had taken a holiday driving around Europe. On the outward journey, they had taken Madame Z to Paris, dropping her off and continuing their tour when the outbreak of the Second World War promptly put a stop to their gallivant, forcing them to retire to England prematurely and at the same time, breaking their ties with Madame Z, who they had not heard from since. He concluded the article by asking, Is this a true ghost story? At the time, I was convinced that it was. Then, next day, I began to wonder if Rosalie was a genuine spirit entity or whether the whole thing was an elaborate hoax. If the latter, that it had been going on for years and no actress on earth could have simulated Madame Z's poignant emotion, and why should they cheat? No one was getting anything out of it, neither money, nor publicity, nor kudos. And would any sane family fool one another every week for years on end? Hardly. And where did the spirit come from? Was there a revolving wall in the drawing room or a trapdoor in the very solid parquet floor? If so, could it have survived my minute and systematic search of the apartment? I suppose that this is possible, but moving floors and sliding walls imply costly, elaborate and silent machinery to operate, and what could possibly be the motive for such a stupendous fraud? The questions were asked, but no answers forthcoming. No members of the X family, nor Madame Z, came into the limelight to out themselves, despite the popularity the case had gained, and Price was never able to repeat the seance experience of Rosalie. In 1948, he sat down in his study to smoke his pipe when he died of a sudden heart attack. 
Price had fulfilled his promise that he would never disclose the location nor identities of the ex-family, and whilst this put an abrupt end to the case in the popular eyes of the public, there were some who wanted answers and were determined to get them if they could. After Harry Price's death in 1948, his reputation took several hits from people climbing out of the woodwork with whom he had had various psychical spats with throughout his life, many looking to smear his work within the psychical society community. Others simply pointing out that at times, Price did seem to court sensationalism to a certain degree, which appeared to not do his credibility any great favours. Two investigators who worked fairly hard to rubbish Price's latter work at Borley Rectory and his account of the Rosalie Seance were Eric Dingwall and Trevor Hall. Price had previously collaborated with Dingwall on publications in the past, however the two shared a rocky relationship that was rife with all the petulant drama and one-upmanship that surrounded the psychical community. In the pair's investigation into Price's Rosalie affair, they state quite generously that Price's account of events seems fair and that the whole affair appears to have been relatively motiveless on behalf of the ex-family. It is easier even to assume that Rosalie was a genuine materialisation and that the seance was an elaborate, costly and motiveless demonstration prepared and rehearsed with consummate skill by six people, including a young child, for a single performance in conditions of absolute secrecy that prevented either reward or recognition. The seance, it seemed to Dingwon Hall, appeared to have been genuine, provided it was written as a factual event rather than a fictional work by Price himself, a conclusion which they certainly believe could have been possible, using the tale to create a sensational story to include in his book. And this became their theory. Underpinning it was the fact that they stated that there existed no evidence to support the fact that Price had attended the seance when he said he did at all, claiming that nobody was able to confirm if Price had gone to the seance. The problem for their theory, however, was that it was simply untrue. There did in fact exist evidence from three separate people that spoke to Price the morning after the seance and mentioned it in later writings or interviews. Dingwall and Hall had simply not bothered to speak to them about the affair. In the first, Price's secretary at the time, Ethel Beenham, who had been interviewed by the SPR in the year following Price's death with regards to his Borley Rectory investigation, said that she could remember Price on the morning after and that he had showed up to the office terribly excited. She went on, He appeared exhausted and said that he had been transcribing his notes sitting up half the night. If this was all play acting... It was certainly very marvellous acting. In the same year, whilst writing a biography on Harry Price, the author Dr. Bull Tabori had spoken to psychical investigator and SPR member Molly Goldney, who had told him at the time that she met Price again on the morning after the seance, on the 16th of December 1937. I happened to call in on him at his office in Berkeley Square the next morning and found him with his hands full of a sheaf of papers. He told me he had sat up a great part of the night writing out an account of what had occurred. He was more excited and shaken than I have ever seen him. And finally, Price had spoken to Richard Lambert before the seance had taken place, both explaining the invitation and, of course, asking him to accompany him. As it turned out, Price had had further communication with Lambert after the fact too. My next memory is of the morning of December the 16th when I was called up on my telephone in my office by Price, who was obviously in an excited state of mind. I remember clearly his opening words. Lambert, 
I don't know at this moment whether I'm standing on my head or my heels. He subsequently gave me a detailed description of what had taken place the night before at the apartment of Madame Z. With these three witnesses examined, Dingwon Hall's damning investigation into the Rosalie affair and their theory that it was simply a figment of Price's imagination is swiftly put to bed. Upon publication of their paper, Molly Goldney said of the report, If my experience at their hands is a fair sample of their methods of dealing with witnesses, one cannot but have doubts as to the value of any conclusions they may have reached. Dingwon Hall had also focused on the location of the ex-family household and once again assumed it to be a fictional house. With almost no evidence upon which to choose a locale, they investigated the South London area of Broccoli, near to where Price had grown up as a child, based on a single letter written to Price where, alluding to the X family, they were called these Broccoli people. Upon searching the area and finding no house that matched Price's description, they concluded in the report that it simply did not exist. As an investigation, It was more an attack piece rather than a serious exercise, which unfortunately, for any curious onlookers, brought no new light to the table concerning the mystery of Rosalie. Fortunately, later investigations were to fare a little better. 1965 saw two separate investigations into Price and the Rosalie affair, one from the SPR and another from an independent amateur investigator named David Cohen. Cohen was an amateur hobbyist investigator, though his dedication to his hobby did stretch the definition somewhat. In his home city of Manchester, he was the investigations officer for his local psychical society, and his position saw him travel extensively throughout the north of the UK on a regular basis on his days off from work, and at times even saw him travel as far as Eastern Europe. He joined the SPR in 1957 and had read much of the literature on Harry Price though he admitted that he was somewhat indifferent to the investigations in general. He began to research the Rosalie seance to include the story as part of a lecture that he was planning. These humble beginnings would eventually lead to a much deeper search than he had ever planned for, culminating in the release of a book on the subject titled Price and His Spirit Child Rosalie in 1966. As Cohen dug deeper into the literature and documentation surrounding the case, he found that he disagreed more and more with Dingwall Hall's earlier investigation, and his disagreement led to a book which saw his attitude on Price go from indifferent to ardent defender, and this point of view was heavily reflected in his eventual published work. Whilst his investigations failed to uncover any fresh information or shine any new light on the mystery, it did serve as a catalyst for a far more positive view on Price and the seance. Whilst David Cohen was busily writing his book and gearing it up for publication, the SPR were heading their own parallel investigation, spearheaded by investigator Richard Medhurst. Medhurst felt it important to strip back his investigation and to take it back to its roots in an attempt to view it from a fresh perspective. Part of this saw him pouring through all of Price's original papers, which had been bequeathed to the University of London after his death as part of his extensive library. Whilst trawling these papers, Medhurst made an important discovery which simultaneously drew up a new lead for the case and hammered a thick nail into the coffin of the Dingwall and Hall paper. Tucked away amongst a stash of communications was a carbon copy of a letter written by Price to Mrs X on December 13th, 1937, two days before the seance. The contents of the letter itself were fairly unremarkable. 
It was simply a letter confirming the date and time that he would arrive at their house for the sitting, with a small paragraph asking for permission to bring along Lambert as an assistant. This did, however, confirm the accounts of Lambert himself, and with the date and time in writing, it also formed hard evidence which matched with Price's account. Even more interesting than that, however, was that the letter was addressed not to Mrs. X, but a Mrs. Mortimer, which meant that now the X family had a name. Medhurst's spirits were greatly buoyed by this discovery. With such a clue, the location of the Rosalie sitters seems only a matter of time, he wrote. Medhurst's plans were to cross-reference every house in South London that was home to the family of a Mortimer in 1937 and which also had a telephone. He would then find the records for the family and if they matched, give or take, to Price's description, he would visit and examine each house one by one to see if the house too was a match. Despite such narrow criteria, this was still a massive undertaking and as Medhurst dug deeper and deeper into the old telephone directories, his initial excitement began to fade. Several of the houses that homed a Mortimer family had been destroyed during the Blitz, whilst it soon became clear that if the house had decided to keep their number out of the telephone directory, then as far as he was to know, they simply didn't exist at all. Still, he cracked on and eventually narrowed his search to 116 entries across London for families which fit his specifications. He toured across London looking for houses that might match, until in Broccoli of all places, just like others had guessed in the past, he found a house which closely fit the description by Price at 21 Wickham Road. The place had a few problems though. To start with, the young lady of the house would have been 15 at the time of the seance, and though he felt that the age range was close enough to the real Miss X, a bigger issue was that Miss Mortimer of Wickham Road had a sister. Despite such an enthusiastic search stemming from the only fresh lead on the case in over 15 years, Medhurst's search eventually led him to nothing more than just another dead end. In his conclusions to his search, he surmised that Price had potentially fudged his description of the house in order to further conceal its location. If this were true, then it left the search for the Mortimers and the Rose Lee's house in a grim position indeed. Six months after the publication of David Cohen's book in 1966, he was forwarded a letter from the publisher Postmark from London. Cohen opened the thick envelope and began reading the lengthy communication which very quickly revealed itself to have been written by Miss X that explained the entire Rosalie affair from her perspective inside the house of the X family. It is an exceptionally long letter, totalling almost 5,000 words, However, an edited version with pertinent details intact is as follows. April 1966 Dear Mr. Cohen, I have read your book about Harry Price and his spirit child with interest and, forgive me, with some amusement, for I am always amused at the various guesses which are constantly being hazarded about the Rosalie ghost. But then I am in a rather privileged position, being now the only living person who knows the whole truth about the seances held in our house 30 years ago. My father had a good position, a position of trust, in a city firm, and we were living in the 1930s in a fashionable suburb of south-east London. My mother did not know when or why my father started to speculate on the stock market. She told me that he lost his money, and what I think she called staggering and borrowed money from his firm in order to cover his losses. 
Naturally, the time arrived when this money had to be returned, and about this time, my father became acquainted with a wealthy French widow who lived in our neighbourhood. When, some time later, I met Madame, I took an instant dislike to her. She was a grasping, suspicious woman and something of a miser. The only soft spot in her hard nature appeared to be a love for her dead child. If such a morbid fixation can be called love. According to my mother, my father suggested to Madame that he could invest some money for her at a high rate of interest, and this appeal to her cupidity proved too great a temptation for Madame to resist. But poor father, although he was now able to return the money he had borrowed from his firm, was completely in Madame's power. He was able to pay the interest on the money he had pretended to invest, but Madame had to be prevented from asking for the return of her capital or from making any inquiries about some worthless securities that my father had given her. My mother told me that she was convinced that had Madame discovered she had been tricked, there was absolutely no doubt that she would immediately have started legal proceedings. However, my mother assured me that this deceit was merely a matter of time, because my father had cause to believe that he would, within a year or two, be in a position to pay Madame the money she had given him. In fact, this is actually what did happen, and sometime before the last war, my father persuaded Madame to sell her shares in the pretext that they were likely to depreciate in value. My mother thought this was when Hitler invaded Czechoslovakia or Austria, because she remembered that my father used the international situation as a reason for the likelihood of depreciation. Of course, some 20 years had passed when my mother told me about my father's financial difficulties, and she was then a little vague about details. But I remember my father returning from the city one evening and saying to my mother with some excitement, we can now exercise this ghost. This, I now believe, must have been a reference to the ending of a period of great anxiety suffered by my parents. But I must return to a time about two years before this happy ending, when it was desperately necessary to retain Madame's faith in my father and to prevent her from asking embarrassing questions about her investments. Unfortunately, for my father, Madame started to show some suspicious interest in her capital, and her inquisitiveness had, in some way, to be diverted. As Madame was constantly talking to my father about her dead child, Rosalie, he came to the conclusion that this was the only weak link in her armour, the only interest stronger than her interest in money, and therefore the only interest that could be used to save him and his family from disgrace. So my father turned towards spiritualism, purchased some books on the subject, and informed Madame that my mother was an amateur medium and that seances were sometimes held at our home. It was this time that I was first brought into the deception. My parents asked me to take part in what they called a ghost game, to be played as a harmless joke on a French lady. At first my part in this business was childishly simple. I was to slip noiselessly into the darkened room soon after the others had settled down, take up a position in the corner of the room, and answer some questions in a hushed, childish lisp. I was then, at a prearranged signal from my mother, to slip silently out of the room before the lights were switched on. But when we started to rehearse the procedure, we came up against our first snag. Although my father oiled the hinges and handle mechanism of the door, the latter could not be persuaded to act noiselessly. My father overcame the difficulty by making a small wedge which he stealthily inserted into the door catch when finally closing the door before the sounds commenced, a wedge which he removed when opening the door after the sounds had ended. Thus I did not have to touch the rather loose handle when entering and leaving the room. 
The second snag, which my father had to contend with, was Jack, our Airedale dog, who was greatly attached to us as we were to him. Whenever any of the family were in the house, Jack was completely miserable if he could not be with us, whining and scratching at doors until he found us. My father said he could not trust the servants to keep him in the kitchen during the seances because Jack was an adept at slipping out of any door which had to be opened, even for a second. The danger had to be overcome of his flinging open the unlatched seance door, and so father decided to have him in the room during the seances, where, as long as mother and father were there, he could be relied upon to remain quiet. Much later, my father realised that the presence of Jack at the seances could have been a clue to an intelligent investigator, but here we were lucky for the clue was never discovered, not even, I believe, by any of the many authors who have written about Rosalie. My mother was, at first, rather apprehensive about these seances, and my father had to give up the idea of asking her to simulate a trance condition. She was to play as passive a part as possible, and merely to ask certain questions of the spirit, commencing with, I feel the child is in the room. Are you there? Are you there, Rosalie? After she had repeated this three or four times, I was to whisper, in as childish a voice as I could answer, Yes, Rosalie is here. If I remember correctly, Madam first visited our home for a sitting about two days after the Crystal Palace fire, an event which caused a great stir in our part of London. The seance went without a hitch. I waited in the hall after Madam and my parents had entered the room, and I listened for the wireless to be switched off, which was my signal to slip into the room. I was very nervous and excited at this first seance, and nearly forgot to switch off the hall light before opening the seance door an omission which would have been fatal to our purpose. The door opened noiselessly at a slight pressure, and I crept into the room and waited. I answered about five or six questions, given the answers which had been suggested by my father. I am very happy. I walk in meadows filled with beautiful flowers. I play with the other children. They are very kind to me. A beautiful lady in shiny white looks after us, etc. After Madame had departed, my parents told me that they were very pleased with my performance. I gathered that Madame was suitably impressed. After some months, my father decided to ask his young brother, Uncle Jim, to help him in this ghost game. I think the reasons for this was that Madame had asked whether Rosalie was the only spirit which appeared at our seances, and what had happened before the child had made an appearance. Father, who was always anxious to allay Madame's slightest suspicion, said that several other spirits had spoken, but that her presence attracted Rosalie more than the other spirits, who would, no doubt, return when Rosalie became less insistent. Uncle Jim was a very dear person and the family was terribly distressed when he was killed in 1942 fighting in North Africa. He was devoted to my father as we all were and eager to help in what he thought was rather a lark. So Uncle Jim on occasions waited in his stocking feet in the hall with me and we took it in turns to enter the dark room. He spoke in the voice of Big Chief Eagle of the Mohawk tribe or an ancient Chinese philosopher, or any other person who appealed to his imagination. I remember on one occasion he became General Gordon, I think he was reading a biography at the time, and on another, when I had a bad cold, he took the whole seance using one or two different voices. My uncle's sense of humour caused my parents some anxiety. Listening to him from the hall, I had great difficulty in suppressing a giggle. Some time before my father had thought of producing the spirit of Rosalie, he had told Madam that he had had a daughter, but he had not mentioned my age. Soon after the seances had commenced, 
Madam had asked my father how old was his daughter, and father, always on his guard and thinking that there might be some suspicious connection in her mind between the spirit child and myself, said I was 16 years old. Unfortunately, a month or two later, Madam asked why she had never met this teenage daughter, and father countered that by saying that I was usually attending physical training classes on Wednesday evenings, but no doubt she would meet me before very long. I believe there were gym classes for adults much publicised at this time, and the claim that I attended these classes made it seem impossible that I could have been young enough to have impersonated Rosalie. However, it was now rather imperative to produce a teenage daughter, so what to do? My parents considered the possibility of bringing a young person into the house to play the part of their daughter, but they soon abandoned the idea as impracticable. Whom could they ask to play this part? Would it not be dangerous to allow the Rosalie secret to go outside of the family? It was finally decided that I must impersonate myself, or more correctly, my elder self. I had played the part of a child some years my junior, and now I must play the part of a girl some years my senior. My mother went to work on me, and with the aid of cosmetics, a teenage dress, a padded bust bodice, a new hairdo and high-heeled shoes brought about a fairly convincing transformation. It is true I was a little short for a 16-year-old, but the high-heeled shoes and the hairdo had added some inches to my height. For several evenings, I was rehearsed in my new part until I became, more or less, accustomed to moving and behaving without awkwardness. Strangely enough, I felt quite at home as a teenager and seemed to put on a new personality with my new clothes. My mother was rather frightened that Madame, having seen my face during some of the seances, would recognise me, the teenage daughter, as Rosalie. But my father said that even he could not have recognised me in the peculiar light of the seance room and did not think it possible that Madame would do. As the Rosalie seances continued, my parents were forced to take greater and greater risk, but they had passed the point of no return and therefore could not retract. For some months after this, all went well until one disastrous evening, I think late November. This mishap was entirely my fault. I had become, after so many successful seances, rather overconfident and ignored my father's instructions. He had told me that if Madame asked the spirit anything about Rosalie's life on earth, I was either to remain silent or to say that I could not remember. I cannot recall the question that Madame asked me on that evening, I foolishly attempted to answer, and of course, it was the wrong answer. After the seance, something like a quarrel broke out between my parents and Madam. She said that she was far from satisfied that she had not been tricked, and my father said that even spirits could forget instances in their earth life, and that it was many years since Rosalie had been on earth. Naturally, I was not present during this altercation, but I learnt about it later, and the upshot of the dispute was, I was told, the father had offered to have a seance investigated by a trained investigator and Madam suggested Harry Price. For the first time since the seances had commenced, my father was worried. During the past year, he had been reading books on spiritualism and realised that a seance with controls would be the most difficult one we had yet given. So my parents, Uncle Jim and I, went into a huddle and worked out a method of procedure. My mother was to telephone Mr. Price, invite him to a seance and extract from him an assurance of secrecy. Considering the danger of one investigation, my father did not want to risk further investigation and should Mr. Price publish our names and addresses, 
it would be difficult, if not impossible, to avoid further investigation and inquiry. Apart from my parents, Madam and Mr. Price, I as the teenage daughter and Uncle Jim as my boyfriend, were to be sitters at the seance. The importance of my being in the room was if Mr. Price sealed the door and Father assured us that he would wish to do this. There were two reasons for Uncle Jim being a sitter. One, my father thought it advisable to have an extra helper in the room to cover, if possible, any minor or unexpected mishap. Two, he would, as my boyfriend, add testimony to my assumed teenage. Although Madam had heard Uncle Jim speak in several different voices, she had never seen him and therefore he could be safely introduced to her as Young Jim. Uncle Jim was, I believe, in his late twenties at the time, but looked very much younger. My father suggested that the spirit should be lighted by hand mirrors coated with luminous paint, because these would not require to be concealed. Uncle Jim pointed out that if Mr. Price wished to handle a mirror, it would be impossible to assure that he would direct its light only to the face and he might see and recognise the dress of the girl he believed to be sitting opposite to him in the dark. My mother said that I could change into spirit clothes, but my father very logically said that, should there be a search of the room, spirit clothes would be as impossible to conceal as a torch. It was finally suggested that the spirit should appear in the nude, a suggestion I didn't much like, but to which I eventually agreed. On the evening of the appointed day, Mr. Price arrived. He was, I thought, a charming man, although rather ugly, and seemed pleased at being asked to attend our seance. I believe my father told him that seances had been held in our house for a longer period than they had, and this exaggeration was, I think, in order to put the beginning back to a time before he had any financial connections with Madam, in case Mr. Price subsequently discovered these financial dealings. He also told Mr. Price that Rosalie had first appeared to Madam when she was alone and at home, thus suggesting to Mr. Price that the spirit first appeared when there was no possibility of trickery on the part of our family. In the complete darkness, I was able to leave my place in the circle and undress in a corner of the room. As my mother had remarkably small hands, we had agreed on the following procedure. After Mr. Price had felt the spirit form, my father suggested that, while holding the spirit's hand, Mr. Price might like those not sitting next to him to speak, and thus assure himself that they are in their proper places. My mother, who had rolled up the sleeves and removed her rings in the dark, then placed her hands in front of Mr. Price, which he held while I returned to my seat in the circle and spoke a few words. When it came to using the luminous mirrors, my father asked Mr. Price to commence from the feet and work upwards. This was because when he came to light the face, the mirror would be beneath the chin and therefore the face would be underlighted. We had discovered when experimenting with the torch that a face which is underlighted is completely unrecognisable as the same face when normally lighted and it was obviously necessary that Mr. Price should not recognise my face. But although we were reasonably sure that Mr. Price would not recognise me, we were rather afraid that Mr. Price would think that my face was not that of a six-year-old. I was then eleven, and therefore looked older than six, but he did not comment on this, and so I suppose my looking slightly older than Rosalie did not occur to him. I was somewhat nonplussed when Mr. Price spoke to Rosalie because my father, after my unfortunate reply to Madam, had told me that I must not speak at this seance. But as Mr. Price persisted in asking questions, I eventually ventured a yes, and this reply fortunately put a stop to his question. After the seance, Mr. Price examined his seals and found them intact, 
He seemed very perplexed, but absolutely satisfied that trickery had been impossible. Madame's suspicions had vanished, and once more, she appeared to be friendly towards the family, or, at least, as friendly as she was capable. My father, in the summer of 1939, had arranged to take my mother for a holiday on the continent, and meeting Madame by accident one evening, he happened to mention the holiday to her. She asked him whether she could accompany them as far as, I think, Paris, and he could see no way of refusing this request. I was spending my summer holidays with my paternal grandmother and Uncle Jim and only heard of this when they hurriedly returned to England. No member of the family saw Madame again and, to tell the truth, we were not sorry to have done with this reminder of a very worrying time. Indeed, I sincerely wish people would cease to write about the Rosalie affair. I had no intention of giving any clues which might connect me or my family with this sorry and rather reprehensible business, and this I think you will understand. There is now, I believe, no other living person who knows the whole story. The servants were never in our confidence, although it is rather impossible to know how much servants get or find out. However, the cook is dead and our housemaid, I have been told, married just after the war and left England to live abroad. This letter was signed off. Yours sincerely, Rosalie. It was a damning document and upon first glance, appeared to comprehensively answer almost every question left concerning the case of Rosalie. However, things are not always as they first seem, and that is true to a disproportionate degree in the case of Harry Price and Rosalie. As damning as the letter from Miss X was, it confused many known facts and contradicted certain aspects of its story, especially with its timeline. There were many who took it to be a hoax, pointing out that Miss X, who was 11 years old at the time of the seance, could not possibly have passed herself off as both a 6-year-old and a 16-year-old in the same evening to the same man. Others pointed out, however, that Price had said in his accounts himself that the girl had looked older than her alleged years. But how much older? Surely not 6 or 12 years. Others pointed out that Price had had control over the seating arrangement which meant that the whole deception had pivoted on a remarkable piece of luck on behalf of the fraudsters. The letter itself was something of a double-edged sword for Harry Price's reputation. It both vindicated him from writing a fictional account, but at the same time showed him up to have been tricked by a family of amateurs. Furthermore, whilst it shone a light on a potential motive, it did nothing to explain who the ex-family were or where their house had been. It was, in total still little more than further unsubstantiated evidence. The mystery of Rosalie had been answered fully, but only if you chose to believe one person's written account of events over another. In the same year he had received the letter, David Cohen unfortunately passed away to cancer, once again leaving the Rosalie affair shrouded in mystery, a situation it would remain in until 2007, when Paul Adams, researching the case for his book, The Enigma of Rosalie, took it upon himself to revisit the material and investigate it from a new perspective. From the outset, Adams had a great deal to contend with. The investigations so far had left only muffled, uncertain conclusions that suggested that Price had invented a considerable amount of details concerning the names of the participants, as well as potentially the description of the house. If this were true, how much else had he obfuscated in order to conceal the participants and to ensure anonymity after his published account. 
was the little girl herself even called Rosalie? This question was one of the earliest that Adams sought to address, and it was a question that it seemed nobody had asked before, or at least not that they had written about. Immediately, he drew a blank, finding that there were no death records for any children named Rosalie from 1921. Therefore, it was likely that even the infamous name of the spirit girl was a pseudonym. He did, however, have the Mortimer name to go on, and an entirely more modern setting in which to try and track both the people and the house down, with all its Google Street View and online archival records. Scouring through names, occupations and addresses from the period, Adams came across over 500 people with the surname of Mortimer that were living in London in 1937. Housing these were 264 individual households, 19 of which were now no longer standing. Meticulously, he cross-referenced the remainder, checking occupations and ages with various records until after weeks of investigation, he had narrowed this list down to only two houses which he felt matched Price's description sufficiently enough to be contenders for the actual Rosalie house. The first was in Lambeth, and whilst the occupations seemed close enough, there were significant differences to the makeup of the family. The father was a labourer rather than a city businessman, and the daughter, whilst being the correct age, had a brother just one year younger than herself. Perhaps the most difficult to square away, however, was the fact that it had been a household within an apartment block, which didn't tally at all with Price's account. The second property was in East Kensington, a well-to-do West London suburb, and it was situated at 28 Cadogan Square. It had a lot in common with Price's house. The occupants were upper middle class, with the father, Halliburton Mortimer, working in the city as a stockbroker, though from the letters uncovered by Adams that were written by members of the family, he was not so great at his job which perhaps tied in with the story of Mr X's debts. He lived in the property with his wife, Dorothy, and their daughter, Joan. Whilst they also had a son which presented a problem, he was serving in the military during 1937 and was posted in North Africa, so was firmly out of the picture, and therefore this didn't necessarily go against the facts. They also employed three members of staff, not two, a parlour maid, a cook and a butler, Finally, in 1939, right about the time that the Rosalie letter suggested her father had been able to pay back Madame Z and put an end to the affair for the family, it was found that Halliburton Mortimer had inherited a large sum of money. This all sounded really rather close to Price's description of Family X to Adams, who zoned in on a Cadogan Square Mortimer's family history. However, there were a few rather difficult snags. Joan Mortimer, the daughter was 30 years old in 1937, not the mid-teen that Price had claimed her to be. If this was the correct household, then what did that mean for the Rosalie letter? It stretched conceivability already to imagine a 12-year-old girl playing the act of a 6-year-old girl and getting away with it, but for a 30-year-old to do the same was simply absurd. Uncle Jim, the family prankster, too did not seem to fit into the picture. And lastly, the Rosalie letter mentioned that the author was the only member of the family currently alive. However, the Cadogan Square Mortimers had several members still going along just fine. The house itself had some differing elements too. It had six floors rather than four, was situated at the end of a terrace rather than detached. As far as the rest of the details went, 
It was, again, remarkably close to how Price described it. The way the house and family both appeared to fit in many different ways, but in others differing, left troubling questions for everything that was known about the Rosalie case. In order to put the matter to bed, Adams formed a plan to prove one way or another if the Cadogan Square house was the Rosalie location and if the Mortimers that lived there were family ex. While scouring through the family's various papers, he had come across a draft of a will written by Joan Mortimer, the daughter. If he could have the handwriting of this will analysed and tested against the handwriting in the Rosalie letter, he could simultaneously confirm both the authenticity of the letter and the identities of the Rosalie sitters in one swoop. And so, on the 26th of June 2016, Adams wound up holding a letter of results written by Margaret White, a legal graphologist who he had enlisted to conduct his handwriting analysis. The letter explained the four categories with which comparison between handwriting examples could fall into. At the top of the chain was, in all probability. Secondly, there was probable, both of which were positive matches that would stand as sufficient evidence in a court of law. Below these two, there was inconclusive and no or little resemblance, both of which were naturally negative results. White confirmed to Adams that it was probable that the author of the will, Joan Mortimer, was one and the same with the author of the Rosalie letter, all but confirming that 28 Cadogan Square was the house that Harry Price had visited 89 years prior on that December night and taken part in the Mortimer family seance. As exciting and revealing as Paul Adams' conclusions were, it left the story of Rosalie in a difficult place. Given that Joan Mortimer was 30 years old in 1937, we are left with the facts that not only had Price changed her age for the sake of anonymity, but so too had Joan herself compounded the obfuscation with her account in the Rosalie letter. Price's changes made a great deal of sense. He changed many of the details in order to keep his promise of anonymity to the family. Joan Mortimer's alterations in the Rosalie letter, however, were more troubling. Was her account filled with truths concealed between lies? How much of it, therefore, was true? And what was her motive for altering the facts in the first place? It seems quite bizarre to write a full confession with an air of finality, only to introduce several more questions. If the child was a real child and Price had been hoodwinked by the Mortimers, then who had they brought in to play the role? Likewise, who had played the role of Jim? Was he, perhaps, a boyfriend of Jones? Or the butler who, according to Price, he had not seen on the night of the seance. Whilst looking through the records of the Mortimer's staff, Adams did uncover an employment record that showed that the turnover for household staff was relatively high, and that at one point, the Mortimer's had employed a maid who had dwarfism, which led to a compelling answer, but no dates to Azar employment could be found to cross-reference them with the dates of the seances. There was only a mention that she could play the jazz piano with some skill. Finally, who was Madame Z? Paul Adams introduces one final twist in his own conclusion, which in all other cases might sound controversial. However, with the case of Rosalie, as we have seen, what we are shown is almost certainly not the truth. Searching through death records of children in and around the Kensington area, Adams shortlisted 14 possible children who could fit the bill as Rosalie. The child that he thought fit the bill most closely had died not of diphtheria, like Price had stated, but of appendicitis, 
and had been aged eight rather than six. Her mother too had died in 1927, so therefore Adam suggests that rather than Madame C, had Price met Monsieur Z on the night of the seance. The child's father that Adam suggests lived locally had also worked as a stockbroker in the city and so was very likely to have known Halibut and Mortimer socially. Was the gender of the long grieving parent that had been so central to the story of Rosalie also switched? With so much confusion of facts and shrouding of detail, the finer points are at times poured over whilst the wider questions are forgotten. Whatever the identities of the Mortimers, Madame Z and of the spirit child, now the existence of the family, the house and the seance are proven and no longer can be considered a fiction by price. What exactly did happen on that night in the dark room? Had Price seen a general materialisation, or had he simply been hoodwinked by the Mortimers, as the Rosalie letter suggests? Did Price himself realise he'd been hoodwinked, but used the story anyway, either through denial, or because he felt it might sell a few books? There are plenty that suggest that Price would not have been hoodwinked by a room of amateurs. However, if he did suspect fraud, then why not simply expose it? He had never been one to mince his words or tread carefully around the sensibilities of others in the past, so why would he have chosen to exercise care on that night? The words of Dr. Zabori, the first biographer of Price, are as good as any at this juncture in explaining the situation as it stands. Was he lying? I do not think so. He was not good at inventing tales. The few pieces of fiction, all unpublished, which I have read from his pen, all show that he was utterly incapable of spinning a convincing plot. And why should he lie? What possible motive could he have had for risking the reputation of a lifetime? Psychologically and morally, this theory will not hold water. I believe that Harry Price was speaking the truth, and that he was both frightened and shaken by his experiences. Now, 80 years on from the original seance, Time only works to obstruct any answers further. As more time passes, and less people linked continue to survive, the answers to Rosalie, it seems, appear to be slipping away for good. No doubt Price would have been thrilled if he could see how long he had managed to secure both common interest in his psychical research and his subject's anonymity. Summed up perfectly, the case of Rosalie is, perhaps the greatest mystery left by that enigmatic psychical researcher. pretty much one of the most convoluted stories I think I've ever had to trawl through for Dark Histories, but one of the most fascinating, I think. And with its conclusion, I pretty much never want to hear the word spiritualism ever again in my life. We'll, however, have a little brief chat after these short adverts. Thanks for listening to Dark Histories. This podcast is entirely independent and funded by myself and listener support. So in order to do that, we need to, you know, run a few ads. So by that end, we've become an official affiliate with Audible. If you're unaware of what Audible is, it's an audiobook subscription service where you pay a monthly fee and with that fee you get a credit that you can spend on an audiobook of your choice. It's actually quite a good service and I'm a member of it myself, so I'm quite happy to have it as a kind of advert in dark histories despite the fact i don't really like adverts because i just think it's a a good service that's a decent value for money 
The basic deal with Audible is that you get a credit once a month that you can spend on an audiobook. And if you cancel, you keep all your books, which is quite nice. They don't take any of your stuff away. Um, you, I, I routinely start and stop my subscription when I, when I don't need to use it, basically. And all my books stay there. They have an app on iOS and Android and I do believe Windows as well. So you can always listen to it on any device and they all sync up as well, which is pretty handy. If this sounds at all interesting to you and you're interested in trying it out, then head over to audible.com forward slash dark histories and you can get a one month trial where you get a free audiobook of your choice. At the end of the trial, if you don't like it or you think it's not ready for you, you can cancel it and it'll, you can keep your free audiobook. And by using our affiliate link, we get a small kickback in the process, which helps to support the show. So it's win-win for everyone, really. So if you are interested, that link again is audible.com forward slash darkhistories. Or if you prefer, go to darkhistories.com, check out support, and you'll find a link there that leads directly to the trial page. Thanks very much. Ads are a pain in the butt, right? Of course, you can hit that 30 second skip button, and that's all cool. But a much cooler way of skipping the ads is to sign up to the Dark Histories Patreon. You get a bunch of different benefits for doing so, including ad-free shows, access to early release episodes, the full back catalogue of bonus episodes, including the live stream archive and all the other bonus content. You get access to all my research notes for each episode, and you get the added bonus that you're actually a part of the show, helping to keep it independent and sustainable from as little as $1 a month. So if you think that might be something you might be interested in doing, hop over to darkhistories.com and you'll find the support page with all the details to get involved. Thanks very much for not skipping this and giving my hard sale a listen. Let's get back to the show. Welcome back. So, the case of Rosalie. I don't even know where to begin. I've spent far too much time trawling through this this past week just trying to unravel the web of lies basically <laughs> i cannot believe i mean i i find it absolutely fascinating but but of course it's it's just so so obscured with layer upon layer of obfuscation because obviously you have price who had obscured everything to provide the anonymity that he'd promised and then, of course, you've got the Rosalie letter, which I believe is is almost definitely, you know, I, I believe that really is a true account. But I sort of feel like it's kind of like the X-Files when, is it Deep Throat says to Mulder that, that the best way to give a truth is sandwiched between two lies. <laughs> That's the first thing that came to mind with that, is that, that, that I, th- I do believe the Rosalie letter is, which is really long, by the way, and... I hate the fact that I had to do such a lot of quote, but it, I think it's really important part of the story, but it's it's considerably longer. So somehow I'll try and get a, a copy of it on the website if you want to read the whole thing. But basically the gist of it was in the, was in the episode. The, the bits I kind of trimmed it down to were sort of just extra info. But yeah, I do believe it's real. I don't know. I just think that it was sort of truths sort of with some elements obscured I, I don't understand about the gym because obviously jim is completely obscured in that so who was jim he's one of the ones that frustrates me i find that the idea that it could have been the butler to be quite interesting because they employed three members of staff 
but obviously Price only saw two, and he never saw a male member of staff, which would lead Jim to possibly have been the butler. I find that quite interesting, but then it means that the, the Rosalie letter was lying when it said that the staff had no idea. The other thing I thought was, was perhaps Jim was just her brother, it, although he was supposed to be in North Africa at the time, but she mentions North Africa in the letter. So I wonder, you can see when Adams discovered the real Mortimer family, you can see how uh, Joan Mortimer, the writer of the Rosalie letter, had synthesised certain facts out of truth and synthesised certain lies out of truth as well because she mentions North Africa in the letter. You know, and that was obviously her brother because she doesn't mention her brother. I can understand why, at first it, it perplexed me why she told, why she said that everyone else was dead. But I guess she's trying to stop anyone looking deeper into it. I think, I, I guess she wrote that to say, you know, I'll, everyone else to do with it is dead except from me. And I'm clearly not going to tell you any more than what I've just told you in this letter. I think she was trying to put it to bed by sort of saying that everyone else was dead when they weren't. But yeah, I, I mean... The Rosalie letter is, is, is really fascinating and I, can't, I kind of believe it. So, so let's wind back a little bit. As far as whether or not it was a spirit manifestation or, or, or not, I have to believe that it wasn't. And I, and I do think that he was tricked rather than it was a genuine materialisation. But interestingly, and, and I say that fully believing it, but also fully understanding my own limitations here because... The reason that I think that it was not a real ghost was because it had flesh and, and, and a, you know, he could touch it and had a heartbeat and uh, you could hear it breathing and it, you know, you could feel her skin. Because uh, then my, my thoughts on it are that if you're a ghost, you don't have those things. I'm willing to accept that it could have been a ghost if he didn't have those things. <laughs> but But if we're talking about accepting ghosts or not, then why am I not willing to accept that perhaps a ghost had you know, flesh and blood. Like, I, I don't know, but I'm not. I, I find, so basically my opinion is that he was tricked somehow, but how he was tricked is really interesting. I do think that a lot of the Rosalie letter explains how he was tricked and some of it's quite clever, like the whole kind of hand, hand holding switcheroo that they did. But some of it, I, I just think too much of that relied on luck. Too much of it relied on everything going precisely the correct way. So I think, you know, it, it fits perfectly, but it only fits perfectly when someone is writing an explanation in retrospect to fit the account, for example. Because if that really was their plan, they were remarkably lucky that they pulled it off every single step without getting found out. You know, there was just too much there that Price could have discovered and I'm surprised that he didn't and you know it was as they mount up you know more and more things mount up you see that the only way they were ever going to get away with it if they pulled it off exactly as the Rosalie letter says was by an incredible amount of luck and everything everything falling in their direction and uh, maybe that did happen but would they have risked it if the risk was so high, like the letter says, because the letter says, you know, that like obviously if they'd have been caught by price, then her dad would have been in financial trouble with Madame Z, legal trouble with Madame Z. 
and Price would have called them out, which would have just been awkward and embarrassing. So would they really have risked that much? I don't know, which makes you then question, so how much of that Rosalie letter is true? It's a remarkably tight letter, and it, it does explain an awful lot. But I just think it explains a lot that's written, like, like it, it reads to me like it was written in retrospect to fit Price's account rather than the truth. So I think that perhaps it was... Again, like truths within lies, if you like. So so I do think they did trick Price. And I think they tricked Price for the reasons that she says. Like the money that he had basically ripped off of Madame Z and they needed to kind of fudge it. Um, but I just think the, the way they tricked him was perhaps not what she admits to. Funny enough, I think that maybe it was actually more simple than that. And I think maybe she she writes the letter to make it sound more complicated and impressive than it actually was. I think if you were going to trick Price, I think it would have had to have been something far more simple. The The, the fact that the child might have been a, a, a housemaid with dwarfism interests me. I think that's a possibility because I definitely don't think it was her because there's no way a 30-year-old was pulling off being a six-year-old. There's just no way. It doesn't match too many things. I mean, her height for a star... She says she put on high heels and did her hair and that gave her a few inches. Well, that, yeah, no. Being 30, you're not going to... I mean, she was lucky if she was 30 that she could pull off a teenager. There was no way that as a 30-year-old she was going to pull off being a six-year-old. Absolutely no way. So, yeah, who who was it? Like, that's interesting. And I say I do think that perhaps, say, the maid with dwarfism, that, 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 that's an interesting element. Oh, I don't know. To be honest, I'm so confused. After this week of reading all this stuff, it's just like totally fried my brain this episode. Just kind of picking through. Because uh, I, I pretty much read through the investigations chronologically. So I discovered it as everyone, you know, as it discovered was discovered in real time, really. So I perhaps shouldn't have done that because I was basically just buying into these webs of lies as well as it was going. So then it ended up that when I read Paul Adams' investigations in his book, I, I was sort of left having to sort of unpick everything that I up till now thought was true as well. Uh, it's perhaps not the best way to have done it in retrospect, but that's, you know, that's the way it goes, I guess. I suppose at least I could write a thorough account. I think I'm going to probably perhaps leave this conversation here because uh, there's loads going to be loads to talk about in the live stream next week. And this episode's already running on really long. So instead I'm just going to lay out my theories and, if you want to contact me and, and let me know your theories, I'd really love to hear that. Um, so my theories are that, 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 that the Mortimers that Adams found definitely were the real Mortimers, that the Rosalie letter is real and was written by Joan Mortimer. But I don't believe that she pretended to be Rosalie. But I do believe that they tricked Price for the reasons that are stated in the Rosalie letter. As for how they did it, I have no idea. So that's pretty much my stance on it, I think. So I think that's probably going to be like the sort of common conclusions that people are going to reach. But um, yeah, like I say, if if you differ from those, especially, like do get in touch and let me know. You can email me, contact at darkhistories.com or come on our Discord. There's going to be an awful lot of chat about this episode, I'm pretty sure, on our Discord this week and definitely at the live stream next weekend. So do come along to eat both of those things. Um, 
you can find ways to contact me um, all through social media, Facebook, Instagram, email, etc. And also all of the details about our Discord server, how to come on, get involved with the community. Um, you can find all of that stuff on darkhistories.com. So jump on there. Um, that's probably the easiest, say, easiest way. Oh, excitingly, I've now got Google Voice uh, phone number. Um, so you can give that a call and leave a voice message if you wish. If anyone wants to test that out for me, that would be great. Because um, obviously I've, I've only just put it on there. Yeah, feel free. Do let me know if you don't want your voice message to be played on the show. Because if if it's like, uh, if it fits, then I, I possibly will play them on the show. So um, do let me know if you don't wish to be on the show. Otherwise, I'm, I'm probably going to leave that here. Because I say, I think this episode's really beast long, already overrunning. So yeah the, the live stream for this will take place next weekend details of which i'll release on social media and obviously will be on the discord everything is generally sorted out through discord jump on darkhistories.com you'll find links to our facebook twitter instagram if you want to contact me you'll also find um say my email address on there the voicemail um if someone tests that out that's wicked um, and you can also DM me on Instagram, Twitter, those sorts of things. Facebook, I, I, do, I do try and uh, get back to touch with people as quick as I can. Yeah, otherwise, that's pretty much it. If you want to support the, all the information and different ways that you can do that, uh, also on the website, um, and any support you can give, even if it's just sharing the show around with your friends, talking about it, it's all really, really greatly received and appreciated. Uh, especially, say, at the moment, um, things are kind of upward turn for the production of the show they're kind of uh, i'm getting enough kind of support on patreon now that we can look at really kind of stepping it up and making it a proper professional production so um yeah this is kind of a, a precarious juncture i guess you'd say at the moment so so yeah definitely it's it's definitely appreciated um thanks very much for listening i hope you enjoyed this week's story it wasn't convoluted as all hell but I hope you enjoyed it. I think it's one of the best mysteries that I've covered and I really enjoyed reading about it. Do let me know your thoughts. I'll see you next week for the live stream or in two weeks for another episode. Thanks very much as always for listening. It's a massive pleasure. Have a great couple of weeks. See you soon. Sleep tight.